Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. It's 1997, and there is a tiger on the prowl in eastern Russia, in the remote uh, area called Primorai. Don't quote my spelling or my pronunciation on that, but in this remote sort of Siberian outpost, this hunting and fishing village, it's a coal mining town, there is a tiger who has killed one of the people who lived on the outskirts of the village. And it looks like this tiger meant business. There was uh, said to be uh, very little remaining. And so Yuri Trush, who was an officer with what, what we kind of think of as the Florida Wildlife Commission, like an FWC officer, Yuri Trush is sent to investigate this tiger. And about the time that he gets to town, The tiger kills again. A friend of the first victim is killed by this tiger. The clock is running out, and the Kremlin issues a kill order on this tiger. They say, nope, we know it's a protected species. We know that all that is going on, but we need this tiger dead. He is menacing this town, and he is killing humans. And so Yuri knows that he needs help there's a problem. As an FWC or the Russian equivalent, it's not called that there, Yuri has been confiscating guns from poachers in this town for years. He has been the one who has been taking away and keeping the men and women of this village from hunting these Siberian tigers. And so who does he have to go for to help, to help him hunt down this tiger? the very people who he has been arresting up until this point for poaching. And what guns are they going to use to hunt this tiger? But the very guns that they have been using as poachers up to this point. And so they set out this collection of Yuri Truss and poor hunters into East Russia, into the forest to search for this tiger. I won't tell you uh, the end of what happens. If you'd like to read more about it, there's a a book by a guy named John Valiant called The Tiger, A Story of Vengeance and Survival. Uh, And let me just point out for a second that if you're going to write like wild man versus nature stories, John Valiant is a great name to have. I mean, just too fitting. I bring it up because this is an unlikely group of people brought together to hunt tigers. Poachers and animal protection agents binding together to hunt this tiger. And there are moments in our lives where we end up in situations like this, whether it's we're having to work on something in school and it's a group project and we are forced by our teachers into one group or another. And as much as we hated that as children, Doesn't that sometimes happen at work as we're now adults? It unfortunately does. There are times when we find ourselves in the opposite group of people that we expect. And sometimes in those moments, we have to reevaluate who we think we are. We have to reconsider 
who we perceive ourselves to be. We have to ask ourselves the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? When Yuri Trush went out into the Siberian wilderness, he had to ask himself the question. What was his job? Was his job to arrest poachers or to protect people and tigers? He had to consider that. The question of who we think we are is essential to our Christian faith as well. How we perceive ourselves influences how we approach Jesus. How you answer the question, who do you think you are, begins to tell the answer to how you are going to approach Jesus. And as we come to Mark chapter 2, what we're going to find is four stories. It's not, not 12 like last week. We're going to do all four of them this week. It's great. But all of these stories are conflicts. And all of these conflicts circle around the idea of self-perception. The conflict around Jesus is a conflict of self-perception. Do we think that we are needy? and sinful? Or do we think that we're pretty good? Do we think that we are part of the problem in this world or part of the solution? Jesus came for losers and sinners. And until we see ourselves in that crowd, until we see ourselves in the crowd of losers and sinners, we will miss, resist, and maybe even block the movement of Jesus in our heart and in the lives of others. So let's read Mark 2 together. I'm going to read it out loud, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I do. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Here's Mark chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciple, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast on in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. Uh, the new from the old, and, the, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One day on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look what they, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. The first story in our chapter is one that many of us, if you've been in the church for a while, are familiar with. It's kind of one of those VBS greatest hits stories. It's one of the ones that like always shows up in a city kids or city tots curriculum because let's be honest, it's pretty memorable right? These men want to help their friend get to Jesus. He's paralyzed. The people are so thick in this house that he, they can't get through. They can't even get into the doorway. So they do what the rest of us would do. They do what any of us would do, which is dig up somebody else's roof. And that's why we remember this story. We remember this story because of how strange it is that these men were so uh, desperate to see Jesus that they dug through someone else's roof, probably Peter's roof. But, but when we focus on that part of the story, we kind of miss what is actually the, the big part of the story because that's just the setup. Having the guy lowered down through the roof that they pull off, that's just the setup for what comes Next, because when this man is lowered down in front of Jesus, something immediately unexpected happens. What we expect to happen is for Jesus to say to this man, your, your friends are awesome, which he does. And then to say to this man, rise up and walk. We expect Jesus to heal this man. Spoiler alert. It's not really a spoiler. I just read it to you. He's going to heal the man, but that's not what he says immediately when the, when the man is lowered down, the first thing he says to the man is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now stop just for a second. Think about being in the place of that man who was lowered down. Your friends have said, hey, we're going to take you to see Jesus. And, and, and we're going to ask him to heal you. 
and, and you're on board, this sounds like a great plan to you, except when you get there, you can't get in the door. And so your friends say, don't worry, we, we got you. We'll go up on the roof, we'll tear out the roof, and we'll let you down in front of Jesus. You're paralyzed, there's not much of a place you can go. So you're on board with this plan. And then you're lowered down in front of Jesus, and Jesus' first words to you are, awesome, your sins are forgiven. That feels like a bait and switch, Jesus. That's not really why I'm here. That's not really why I came. It's nice. I appreciate that. But I was looking for something else. It's funny because so many times we're the same way. We come to Jesus and we want him to fix this problem or that. We come to Jesus and we, we say, Jesus, would you, would you fix my marriage that is having trouble? Work sucks, I know. Would you help me with that? Our kids have gone, have gone crazy. We can't find a partner. Fill in the blank with whatever problem you're struggling with. We come to Jesus and we hope that he will fix those things. But in reality... As serious as those things are, as real as those things are, as much as those things sort of occupy that space in our mind that we can't shove away, they aren't our ultimate need. And Jesus knows that for this man, and Jesus knows that for us. What we really need is forgiveness. What we really need is to be reconciled with God. But our perception of our problem always foregrounds the immediate and forgets the ultimate. Our perception of our problems always foregrounds the immediate and forgets the ultimate. But Jesus is kind. Jesus is understanding. He knows that our immediate pain distracts us from the more serious things that are going on deeper inside of us. Jesus knows this. And that's why he says to the man, first, your sins are forgiven. And then another miracle takes place, which we kind of skip over, which is the fact that Jesus reads the mind of the scribes who were there. They say in their heart, this man is blaspheming. He, he can't, nobody but God can forgive sins. And Jesus begins to immediately return and talk to them with their inner dialogue, which can I say had to have been pretty disconcerting for them. I mean, as much as it would be amazing to see somebody who was paralyzed, get up and walk, it would also be just as bad when I had something and I was having a conversation in my heart and then all of a sudden somebody starts talking to my internal dialogue. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He talks back to these people and he asks them a question. Which is easier? Which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now, we've heard this story so many times because if we've been Christians since our childhood. We heard it every summer and probably more than that. So we sort of know the answer. We've got the cheat sheet. But think about that question for a second because it's not as easy as we want to make it. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? It's actually kind of easier in a way to say your sins are forgiven, right? Why? Because I can't see the result. I could say to you, your sins are forgiven and nothing changes. I don't know. Nobody can see any difference in you. But if I say to you, rise up and walk and you don't get up and walk away, then I look pretty foolish. So which is easier? Well, 
One is easier to say. The other is easier to do. We all know that it's harder to forgive sins than to heal a body because forgiveness of sins requires payment of death. But Jesus ends up doing both. Jesus isn't going to leave this man hanging. He isn't going to just sort of use him as an object lesson. He has real care and compassion here. And so he says, so that you might know that I can forgive sins, which you cannot see. I'll do the thing that you can see, which is tell this man to rise up and walk. And so he does. And then Mark, as Mark has the tendency to do, hits the next, the next button on his video player. And it skips ahead. Because now Jesus is not in this packed house. He's not in this crowded place. He's out by the sea. And he walks along and he calls a man named Levi to follow him. Levi is, is also known in the New Testament as Matthew, the writer of the book of Matthew. And I want to sort of stop for a second and focus on this story as we look at Mark chapter 2. Because what's going on in this story is, is really fascinating. Levi was a tax collector. And tax collectors in the Jewish society were outcast. In fact, if you were a tax collector, if you took the job of tax collector, you were by default, just because you did that, kicked out of the synagogue. They were outcast. They were rich outcast, but outcast nevertheless. Because the way that the Romans handled their taxes, they said, we don't want to handle this ourselves. So we'll subcontract this work out. We'll ask other people to do this. And so people would bid and they'd say, you know what, King Herod, I think I can get you a hundred gold coin this year for taxes. And somebody else would say, oh, I could get you 110. And then finally somebody would sort of win the contract and then they were responsible to go out and collect those taxes. Here's the problem. They didn't have to tell you what they told King Herod they were going to charge for taxes. And so they come to you and say, you owe us a hundred bucks. You're like, but last year is 50. Oh, sorry, give me a hundred bucks. I'm here on behalf of Herod. And you had to pay them whatever they asked for. And so whatever they could collect above and beyond what they had bid to get from Herod, they got to keep. And so however much they could extort from somebody, they got to keep. So you can see why these are not exactly the, the friends you like to have over. These aren't the popular people that you like to sort of name drop in crowds. Nobody sort of said, oh yeah, you know Levi? That's a friend of mine. He goes, he goes to my synagogue. I know him. Nobody was name dropping tax collectors because they were, they were the scourge of the land. They were turncoats. They had betrayed their people. And so he comes to Levi who can't go to the synagogue because he is excommunicated from the synagogue because of his job, Jesus goes out to him and calls him to be his disciple. And there's something else that, that, that's this little note that Mark puts in here, which is where Levi's tax booth was. It was by the sea. Levi's tax booth was by the sea, which may seem like a pretty innocuous detail. Mark was just giving us this address, giving us an idea of where he was. But that's significant, and that's significant for this story. Because one of the taxes that was bid out by the Romans was a tax that was placed on fish. And so if Levi's tax booth 
is by the sea, it stands to reason that he's not just a tax man, he's the fish tax man. Why is this meaningful? Why is this significant? Because who are the disciples who Jesus has called so far in this story? Peter, Andrew, James, John. And their occupation was, somebody already said it, fishermen. Jesus calls these fishermen, and then he calls the fish tax man together to be his disciples. And then Levi throws a party, and he gets all of the tax collectors together. He gets a bunch of sinners together, and then there's Jesus, and then there's fishermen sharing this table together. This is unlikely. This is not just unlikely. This is miraculous. Jesus calls the enemy of his current disciples to follow him and then makes them into one family, joins them all again around one table. Enemies, fishermen and fish taxmen, messiahs and sinners, people who you don't expect to be together are joined together. And church, that's the picture of who we are to be. That is the picture of who we are. There are all sorts of differences of opinion in this church, even a small church like ours, on things like like politics, social issues, all sorts of things. But the gospel makes us one. The gospel unites us. And the way that the gospel unites us is by first addressing our own hearts by first addressing us and calling us to humility, by reminding us that our deepest need is the same as the man who was let down through the roof. Our deepest need is forgiveness. And so Jesus calls a group of people that are forgiven sinners together. He makes a family out of enemies by forgiving them by reminding them who they are, by telling them who they are is that they are ransomed sinners. I love that line in the song we just sang. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. Yes, we are sinners, but yes, Jesus has paid for us. And so we have in this story, a dinner party with fishermen and fish taxmen. We have disciples and sinners, turncoats and the Messiah, breaking bread and fellowshipping with one another which is so radical. And it's radical, first of all, for the reasons I just mentioned, but it's also radical because this was pretty much exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees did. The project that the Pharisees were trying to accomplish, why they sort of always run into Jesus, is that what they were trying to do was make Israel more ritually pure. They were trying to get everybody to follow the rules better because they believed if they could get enough of Israel to follow enough of the rules, enough of the time, then God would send the Messiah. And so anytime you were around sinners, anytime you were around people like tax collectors who defrauded others, you were, doing, you were making yourself impure. The Pharisees perceived themselves to be the solution. They thought if people would just listen to them, everything would get better. But Jesus, through his actions, Jesus, through calling sinners and tax collectors and fishermen around a table, is telling the Pharisees, you're not the solution, you're part of the problem. 
You're not the solution. You're part of the problem. The Messiah wasn't coming to Israel as a reward for people sufficiently getting their act together. The Messiah came for those whose self-perception was that of broken and sinful and needy. That's why Jesus ends this section with that small parable, right? What does he say? Look, you don't go to the doctor when you're healthy. Nobody needs the emergency room when they feel fine. The people who need doctors and emergency rooms are those who are sick. That's who Jesus says we are. That's who says, he says he came to offer forgiveness to. He came to make evil people clean, to offer holiness that we can't attain through any kind of outward purification. But that forgiveness and that holiness that he gives to us starts with us realizing our need for a savior. We are in need of saving. And while it's easy to say that out loud, it's harder to actually let that sink in. We as Christians are good at saying, yes, I I need Jesus. I need a savior. I, I certainly do. I sin just like everyone else. But it's harder for us to let that seep down into our actual self-perception, into who we are, and to seeing ourselves as deeply needy before a holy God. Uh, One of my favorite uh, authors is is someone named Father Robert Capone. And Robert Capone was uh, a priest in the Episcopal Church, and he was also a food writer for the New York Times. So... You guys who know me know probably why exactly I like both of those things. Uh, And one time, Father Robert Capone wrote this, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away because grace only works for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. Let me read that again because it's so good. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away. Because grace only works for losers, and no one wants to stand in that line. Until we are ready to admit that we are losers, sinners, the grace of Jesus will remain abstract and impersonal to you and I. It will be an idea and not the very life-giving source of joy and hope for losers like me. And so Jesus leaves this meal. Mark fast forwards us to another discussion of food. It's a discussion of fasting. The disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees would fast every Monday and Thursday. And people started to take notice that Jesus' disciples didn't do that. So they ask, why is it, why is it that your disciples don't fast? And Jesus gives an illustration uh, followed by two parables. He says that you don't fast at a wedding, which is true. In ancient Israel, weddings were seven-day-long parties. I mean, weddings in Palestine were lit. The whole town was invited. Everybody came. There was literal vats of wine all over the house. I mean, you remember that story from Jesus going to the wedding. And everybody from town came and celebrated and partied for an entire week. And even the most fastidious of rabbis was not allowed to fast during a wedding feast. Everybody was a part. Everybody celebrated with great joy. And Jesus says, that is like what is going on here. Jesus saw his ministry like a traveling 
wedding. Jesus was going town to town collecting more members of his collective bride that would come to be called the church. One pastor describes Jesus' ministry in Galilee as a traveling dinner party. And in this chapter, we see that in many ways. Almost every time we see the story stop, it's because Jesus and his disciples are eating with somebody new, are doing something else. The Messiah has come, and this is a much bigger deal than a wedding. God has made promises all the way back to Adam and Eve that Jesus is now fulfilling. And so Jesus says, because of that, there's no time for fasting. There's just time for feasting. But then he kind of lets a little darkness come into the rim of the clouds there when he says, but there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, where the time for fasting will be back. And Jesus illustrates this with these two parables. The parable of of the cloth. You don't sew old cloth onto a new set of pants because when they shrink, they'll tear. Same thing. You don't put new wine into old wineskins because as the wine ferments, it expands. It'll break the wineskin. You'll be out of wineskin and you'll be out all of the wine inside of the wineskin. We sort of understand like what these parables say. We understand that, but what do they mean? What is Jesus trying to tell us? He's telling us that he's doing something new and category shattering. We see him doing it again and again in this chapter. He's forgiving sinners. He's inviting tax collectors and losers to a feast. What Jesus is doing is not just something that we can add on to what we already do. We can't just add Jesus on to our religion. We can't just sprinkle him and stir him into our politics. Jesus is making all things new and we must follow his lead because he's the one who tells us where we're going, not us. Our need is to follow him into something new and just not add him to our old habits and patterns of thought. Jesus is doing something radically new and that radically new thing begins by who sits around his table. And so Mark concludes these stories of conflict with Jesus' disciples eating grain as they walk through the field. This was permitted in the the law in Leviticus. This was a a way that those who were hungry and in need uh, could have food. You weren't allowed to clip and harvest the grain right along the road. And so Jesus and his disciples are walking through and they grab some grain, some, some corn nut snacks. And as they're walking through, the Pharisees see it and they take exception. They say, why are they doing what is not lawful? This is the Sabbath. You can't harvest on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds with a story from the Old Testament, a story of when King David was on the run from Saul and King David's men were hungry. And so he went to the tabernacle and he went to the priest and the priest gave him the loaves of the presence, the bread that sat on one of the altars inside the holy place was given to David and his men to eat. Jesus isn't doing this to sort of justify what his disciples were doing and saying, well, David did it, so it's okay. He was doing something more than that. What he was doing was saying that there is precedent, 
that when God is doing something new, when God is bringing a new reign and a new king in, new things are happening. And Jesus is not just going to be the king of Israel. He will be Lord of all. He is through his life and death changing the entire world, making the entire world new, making everyone, all of his enemies to be underneath his footstool. He is Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of the losers. And just like David and his men, when they were hungry, were called to something new, Jesus is uniquely calling us to something new. And that's what we're called to this morning, church. Beloved, to come to Jesus means that we need to admit our need, to declare moral bankruptcy, to place ourselves in line with the losers. We have to begin to see how we are not the solution. We are the problem. To see that Jesus is the only solution. He alone is savior. He alone is healer. He alone is the one who can forgive our sins. And so he does. And he calls us together. He calls us together into an unlikely family made of enemies and turncoats, of betrayers and the broken to come and live a new kind of life, a different kind of life with a different kind of family. And this family is united, is called together by a meal, by coming around a table, a meal that can't be bought with money, a meal that can only be bought with blood and death, but not our own. Because if we are trusting in Jesus, he has already bought the tickets and he has already paid the tab. If you see yourself as in need of this kind of savior, come and buy bread without money. Come and drink wine without cost. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power. Let's pray.